I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. For the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about education and particularly the role of a mother in the education of her children, particularly daughters. Um, Queens were usually much more responsible for the education of their daughters than of their sons for obvious reasons, you know, if you're new here. So we're going to be doing a two-parter, actually. Just because there's so much information on this topic, we thought it would be better not to rush ourselves. This episode, we're going to be talking about Catherine of Aragon and her daughter, Mary, because there's a lot of really interesting tidbits we found about how Catherine really championed her daughter's education uh, and kind of set her up to be educated as a queen rather than just like a Renaissance princess. It's worth taking the time to unpack those and really really delve deep into them because I know we say this about a lot of topics you know we could have a whole series on this I think education is one of the ones worth spending the time on so we will be coming back to it in future episodes I have absolutely no doubt about it I think it was important for us to do this one too and solely focus on Catherine of Aragon and Mary's relationship in the next episode we'll talk about Catherine Parr and Elizabeth and I feel like that's the most talked about relationship in terms of the educational connection. Um, Elizabeth I obviously is very well known for how intelligent she was. And so people automatically kind of want to get back to the beginning of that and see who influenced her education and like look at her early years and her early education to see where that came from. Mary, though, was just as intelligent. And I think that a lot of people know this, but it's not necessarily talked about a lot. And it's really interesting to see how her education then was influenced by her mother and how Catherine was really the champion of that education. I think with Mary, where her reign as an adult is so short and it's so divisive, for want of a better word, that that is the thing that people focus on. And, like you know, that the, the focus is drawn away from her intellect and I think we we tend to focus much more on her religious life and her personal and romantic life with with Philip. So it's nice to be able to give her a bit of a spotlight and, you know, show her as a more rounded person and someone who enjoyed learning. I want to start off with just an intro to, like, female noble education, because I think because Elizabeth and Mary are so intelligent, we have this idea that their education is quite rare, like to see a woman be educated so much. But I think that Mary and Elizabeth were so intelligent and they had such a love of learning that their education ended up reflecting that great love of their life. But the education itself is not necessarily atypical. Um, noble women were educated quite well. So it's not necessarily an unusual thing. I think that's the first kind of myth that we have to bust is that girls were educated. They were very highly educated if they were noble. And that was really down to the influence of their mothers. Mothers were responsible for arranging the education of their daughters, if not managing it themselves, not necessarily maybe some of the more academic subjects, but certainly the, uh, you know, the domestic arts. But it wasn't education for the sake of education we're going to educate you into um, 
into domestic life because that is first and foremost your job and then you know you've got these other skills to fall back on and to be independent as and when you need them if you need them so I think while while we have a lot more women than we're probably used to talking about benefiting from humanism and a humanist education they have to understand it in the context of the 16th century because ultimately you've like I said you've got these skills to to fall back on as and when you need them but also who's going to look more attractive on the 16th century tinder marriage market someone who is well read and someone who can converse with their husband in different languages or someone who is viewed as fundamentally boring that's a tough choice (laughs) which person's more interesting (laughs) I think a really good example of that female influence on education is with Henry VIII So Henry VIII didn't grow up in a household with his older brother, Arthur. Arthur was educated separately. He was the heir to the throne. His education was much more managed by his father and then his grandmother, Margaret Beaufort, because we know she had opinions. Whereas Henry grew up more with his sisters, uh, with Margaret and Mary. And because their education was being managed by their mother, Elizabeth of York, Henry was kind of tacked onto that. And they spent an unusual amount of time Um, for, you know, royal households, all three of them together. And so Elizabeth of York actually did a lot to manage her son Henry's education. And that was just, that was a a part of her role, you know. So Henry definitely did have a, a value for the input of women onto an education. This was not something that was rare for him to experience. So then like if we look at women of the period we aren't necessarily surprised to see that i think maybe with the exception of katherine howard whose education definitely focused more on like courtly life and manners and all of that all of henry's wives were exceedingly educated because they were raised as noble women and um katherine of aragon was certainly no exception because like you said she was born to go on to the royal marriage market so her tinder bio had to be very extensive um, and her education would have been arranged by her mother Isabel of Castile it reflects not only her being sort of a good woman like a, a domestic partner but it reflects her being a politician as well somebody who is going to a foreign court to represent the interests of her parents kingdoms so Catherine would have grown up learning a variety of things I made a list, it's not extensive, but arithmetic, law, literature, genealogy and heraldry, history, philosophy, theology, uh, the languages, Spanish, Latin, French, and Greek, domestic skills like cooking, courtly etiquette, sewing, dancing, music, and art, like drawing. So she was exceedingly well-rounded and she was not an unusual case. Like all of her sisters would have had the same education. So many noblemen would have had a similar education. Think Anne Boleyn, you know, learning in uh, the courts of the Netherlands and France. Smart women are not rare. I think that's, we have to get that out of our heads. Yeah, for sure. They're, they're not rare. Just like they're not rare today because we're all, we're all out there. <laughs> um <laughs> Like you said, with her education being quite typical of a noble woman, I know we've kind of spoken about this before with the Isabel of Castile being this, you know, incredible, remarkable figurehead in her own right, you know, and we, we kind of had that conversation of, well, why didn't she educate Catherine to be like that? 
again, that's not her job. It's not her job for her daughter to be remarkable in the sense of leading armies or uh, or anything like that. It is to attract a, a husband on the international marriage market. And that's exactly what she was doing for Mary as well. So when it came time to plan Mary's education, Catherine took charge. And that's not surprising to see at all. That would have been an expected role for a queen, a mother to educate her daughter. What is kind of unusual, though, is that Catherine really got really invested in it. Because Mary was her only surviving child, she had so much devotion to her that she wasn't going to do anything by halves. We see that she was interested in giving Mary a similar kind of very well-rounded education. She wanted Mary to be just as learned in all sorts of different subjects, not just feminine arts, you know. And to do this, she really focuses on giving Mary a humanist education. And I, that's a word that we toss around a lot. And I think we've defined it before, but I just wanted to go into it a little bit more because we are going to be dwelling on it a lot in this episode. Humanists of the early modern period were people who believed in studying like the human experience. It's kind of like philosophy the humanities today, like humanities, like literature and history are studying the human experience, the art of being human. They are people like Erasmus, Thomas More, who are really championing this very kind of more educated, refined world. And Catherine is a product of that world. That's who she was learning from when she was younger. And so it makes sense then that she would carry it into her daughter Mary's education. In the early 1520s, when Mary was about six, seven years old, Catherine really began to think about, like, how are we going to build this kind of curriculum for Mary? It's not just the basic nursery school stuff now. It's like we're really getting into um, the time when a child should start their formal education, probably much more formal than we're used to. Like these kids are learning Latin right, right out the gate. But to do this, she, she goes back to her humanist roots. She's a friend of Thomas More. She's a friend of Erasmus. And she gets somebody from their circle to design a curriculum, basically, for Mary. The man she chooses is a man named Juan Luis Vives. He is Spanish. He is a professor in several universities in France at the time. He actually translated or wrote a book um, that he dedicated to Henry VIII. And because he was friends with Erasmus and Thomas More, he catches the attention of the English court. And Catherine hears about him and invites him to England, where he takes up residence at Oxford. And from there, he is the one who he doesn't teach Mary directly, but he does a lot to design her studies. And he, he gives Catherine advice about how to structure her education over the years. And luckily for us, he ended up publishing a lot of his writing on the subject. So we know kind of exactly what Catherine was thinking of and what uh, Vives was thinking of in terms of how are we going to mold kind of like the ideal English princess. You say his name a lot better than I do, so. <laughs> um, I took Spanish as a kid. It's coming in handy, finally. <laughs> Don't out me on the internet. <laughs> um, and I think 
what I find so fascinating about Vivez is this kind of duality in what he's kind of trying to achieve with an education for Mary, because he's got a lot of ideas about the point of education for women and what they should be trying to achieve from it. Vivez actually argued that um, women are um, easily swayed and uh, easily uh, malleable. I, I don't really know how else to put that. So what they should do in terms of their education, they should stick to a very strict course of reading, you know, in terms of reading classical authors and the Bible, because education will help them to remain chaste. Um, and they should use that time to focus their energy so they don't have time to have impure thoughts and think about anything else before they're married. For his mind, it makes sense. But now you're reading it like, this is... Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit that I hadn't actually read any of his writing before we actually started researching for this episode. I knew that it existed and I knew the gist of what he was saying. And from reading about it in articles, people celebrate it as this him as this great sort of landmark in women's education. And they're not wrong, but I think that just like we were saying last season with people celebrating Anne Boleyn's education as this, quote, feminist education, we need to be really careful with how we toss that term around because to our modern eyes, and, you know, feminism is a modern concept, so I feel comfortable saying this, this is not a feminist work at all. I was reading it and I was like, how do you figure? You know, he's basically, like you said, saying that women are predisposed to be these like wild flimsy creatures and education is great and all women should have access to education but if only to kind of cool themselves and to make sure that they stay out of trouble and it's like I get I like where you're headed with this but we're not quite there as we'll talk about in more as we go on we'll have to kind of dissect him a little bit more than just taking him at face value as like this this awesome like you know women's advocate it, and I get, and we've spoken about this before, but it's applying terms to people that don't understand themselves in such a way. It doesn't make sense. He's probably doing more than other people are doing, but it's just the way he's going about it to us that seems a bit strange. And I think that's the thing to bear in mind. There are two big publications um, that Vives publishes that are related to Mary and Catherine of Aragon. The first one is probably less well-known. It was written in 1523, right when he came to England and started having this contact with um, the queen and the princess. In English, it's known as the Plan for Study for Girls. And it's basically written as a letter uh, to Catherine of Aragon. And you get the impression that Catherine sought him out and said, I'm organizing my daughter's education and I want to know what you as a, a learned man, as a humanist, would suggest for my, my daughter's education. And he writes a response to her and outlines what he thinks would be most useful. It's kind of a dry read. It's definitely, you know, purpose written and it focuses really heavily on Mary's Latin education. Latin was seen as the higher language in early modern Europe. Most noble people had at least some knowledge of Latin. Definitely the royal family had 
a huge knowledge. I mean, think of um, when when Catherine of Aragon first came to England, her common language with her husband Arthur was Latin, so they conversed in Latin. It's interesting reading it because um, he he gives tips like that you would see if you're you know learning a first lang a second language when you're in elementary school or something. It's like Mary should be learning vocab words for things that she uses every day and interacts with. Like she should know all the Latin words to describe the furniture in her bedchamber. And it's kind of like you know when you take a second language class and you learn how to like ask where the bathrooms are or something. <laughs> So it's just interesting to see how that kind of aspect of education hasn't changed. But yeah, for the most part, this particular letter is not the you know interesting little uh, morsel that we, we necessarily think it is. The thing that is, though, so in the same year, I think inspired by his work to organize the, a curriculum for Mary's study, Vives ends up writing one of his kind of great works, one of the works that he's most well known for as a scholar, and that is the one we've been referencing. Um, it's called An Education of a Christian Woman, published in 1523 and dedicated to Catherine of Aragon. So the, the connection is clear. In fact, his dedication to Catherine is quite telling about how he kind of regarded her and respected her intellect. He writes that the work is dedicated to the most gracious princess, Catherine, Queen of England. I have been moved partly by the holiness and goodness of your living, partly by the favor, love, and zeal that your grace beareth towards holy study and learning, to write something unto your good grace of the information and bringing up of a Christian woman, a matter never yet entreated of any man among so great plenty and variety of wits and writers." So he's basically saying there are lots of different books out there at this time about how to educate a prince. There are a lot of humanists who kind of muse on the idea of what do we see in a good ruler. I mean, think too of like philosophy like uh, Machiavelli, who they're, they're kind of thinking about what makes a good ruler, how do we educate them. But none, nothing had ever been written about educating noble women and women in general. So in that way, I think this is a landmark for women's history. But as we were saying, um, just because it's dedicated to a woman who he clearly respects her intellect and everything doesn't mean that the work itself is necessarily celebrating the intellect of women. No, again, context is key in this situation. Like you said, it's that fact that, you know, you kind of got the mirroring of Erasmus and the education of a prince in there that's going on and that it's the first work of its kind. That is itself is quite cool and it is groundbreaking. But again, so take it take it as you will. I think that's the thing to remember too, is that the plan for the study of girls, you know, the the letter um, is written specifically for Mary's education. Like he references her specifically. Education of a Christian woman is his sort of brainchild of like, oh, so what I all what I thought of for Mary is actually a really good idea. I should write a book about it. And it's not just necessarily for um, a royal education. It's inspired by that, certainly. But now he's more generally musing on the education of all women. So again, a kind of landmark moment in the sense that he did believe that education shouldn't be restricted to royal or like, you know, the upper classes. He believed that all women should have a chance for education. It's because that he thought 
women, if left uneducated, would be up to no good and corrupting society. But I mean, you can you can appreciate at least what he was going for. So when we look at Mary's education, it's easy to see the kind of um, the influence that Vives had on Catherine of Aragon planning Mary's education. Mary grew up extremely intelligent. I was researching a little bit about like her general studies and what she ended up learning. So you'll be pleased to know that she was entirely fluent in Latin by the time she was nine. All that vocab work, you know, turned out really good for her. But she also learned Greek, French. She could converse in Spanish. She knew a bit of Italian, some working Italian. Um, but and she could read and write in all of these languages. Like she's reading works in all of these languages, and she's learning how to converse with foreign dignitaries, which is super important for a royal woman. She's learning the academic subjects as well. So she's learning like law and maths and history, literature. She's learning the domestic arts too, to some extent. I don't know if it's like as much as Catherine of Aragon learned, but she's learning like courtly etiquette. She's learning how to do needlework. She's learning how to dance. When she was really young, she used to show off how good she was at playing the virginals. She would entertain foreign dignitaries so Henry could kind of show her off and how great of a princess she was. So she was receiving this very rounded education. And I think partly due to the influence of Vives, but I think mostly to do with the influence of her mother, who's really kind of championing her and can see her intellect and is thinking, okay, this is good. Like we're, we're going to build this perfect curriculum, like specifically for her. Yeah. It, it, it's a perfect curriculum of education and it does, it ticks all of the boxes. And I like that Catherine's getting so much more credit for that now i think she's really coming out as a full-fleshed renaissance queen because before we saw catherine was sort of like oh well she was the super duper religious one and her influence on mary was more religious and not to say that it wasn't it certainly was i mean part of mary's education would have also been religious education theology but catherine was also interested in her daughter's mind as well as her soul and to, it is to the point where she's having works, like major works um, dedicated to her and like, oh, the, dedicated to Catherine, this champion of female education. So it, like it says it right there. So it's definitely I'm glad that we're fleshing out that side of Catherine a little bit more and that aspect of her relationship with with Mary, because Mary certainly was a product of her mother. think because Mary was Catherine's only child, uh, her only surviving child, Catherine really invests herself fully in Mary. But then it's interesting to see how it kind of evolves as Mary gets older. And as it becomes increasingly clear that Catherine is not going to have a son. In the mid 1520s is when the great matter hasn't started, but it's definitely Henry's starting to feel a little bit of, uh, you know, the fire being lit under him 
He's had his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, by this point, so he knows that the problem is certainly not with him. He, he is capable of having male children. It's Catherine that is the, the issue, and the discontent really starts to brew. But it's interesting to see how Catherine's perception of Mary and how kind of the country's perception of Mary begins to change during this period. And Mary's education actually becomes a political point um, and something that Catherine clearly is trying to use to make her own situation much more comfortable. Mary suddenly is being regarded as the heiress of England not officially by any means, and I don't think it's something that Henry ever entertained in any way, but a lot of people are starting to think that in the absence of a male heir, Mary is going to be it, and suddenly we're all very interested in her education and how we're raising her. Like you said, with with the absence of any kind of male heir, Mary does look like the natural choice as well. And I think as well, it's worth bearing in mind that she's also going to be the natural heir to people who are advocating for a continuity um, of religion and kind of championing the Catholic cause. So in this half, we're going to talk more about kind of the political implications of Mary's education and Catherine kind of, I think, working behind the scenes to make sure that the education of her daughter is suddenly more from educating an English princess, a, a noble royal woman, to educating an heir to the throne. But just a word of caution before we get too heavy into it, we don't necessarily know any of this for 100%. I think we can easily speculate it, judging by all these contextual evidence that we have, but Catherine never wrote, sat down and wrote, like, I think my daughter Mary should be the queen and it'll be totally okay. England had never had a queen before. Um, I mean, there's there's a a bit of a thing with um, Empress Matilda and everything, but I don't think it's anything that Henry ever entertained as even a, a possibility. It's clearly not. A, he, he's thinking more in terms of how do I undo my marriage to get a male heir now, not how do I make the most of what I have now. But it's Catherine, interestingly, who you see kind of advocating for Mary to be put in positions of power that we usually only see with heirs to the throne. So that's the kind of contextual inferences we can get of like maybe Catherine did have her eye on the long game here and maybe she was thinking in terms of this is the best option we have how do I prepare my daughter for potentially being thrust into this role I mean I I wouldn't put it past Catherine to be thinking that way while she's not written stuff down what we now need to look for is what actions is she taking because I think you can get a lot more from that and I know you found a really interesting example about Mary holding court at Ludlow Castle as Princess of Wales. Yeah, so again, speaking about how the heir to the throne usually had a different education, like you were specifically being educated to be king. And part of that is like almost practice ruling. Most heirs to the English throne have been invested as the Prince of Wales. It is not a title that comes at birth. The monarch has to bestow it on their heir, especially. So, like, think of Queen Elizabeth II specifically made a point of um, going to Wales to invest Prince Charles at the time as the Prince of Wales. So, once the heir to the throne was invested as the Prince of Wales, they go spend some time in Wales and they have this almost little 
practice court at um, Ludlow Castle in Wales. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because when Prince Arthur, Prince of Wales, married Catherine, they went to Ludlow to kind of have their own little household. And Arthur was supposed to keep court as Prince of Wales at Ludlow Castle. And then that failed spectacularly because of the sweating sickness. But it was it was part of the the sort of rota of education for the heir to the throne that traditionally they be sent to Wales and the center of their world there is Ludlow Castle. And I think just quickly it's worth touching on here. So whilst um, it might seem a bit arbitrary, it kind of forms part of a longer standing tradition that I don't want to get into it about a. Uh, the English occupying Wales, so it was meant to be seen almost as a, just in case you've forgotten that we're here, uh, just in case you've forgotten who you owe your allegiance to and which crown you owe your allegiance to, it is us. So it wasn't just a romantic getaway and it wasn't just for fun. There was a, a direct political purpose behind it. So in 1525, it's really clear that in terms of a legitimate heir, a child of the king and queen, Mary is all you're going to get. And it's interesting how then her life begins to change because she's being kind of regarded as the heiress. No one's really saying it out loud, but a few things happen that really suggest that we're making this move to pave the way for her eventual succession to the throne. And the most significant of them in the tradition of being sent to Wales as the Prince of Wales is that Mary is sent to Wales. She is sent to hold court at Ludlow in 1525. And just like, you know, Arthur would have, just as all of the other princes of Wales would have, she was kind of Henry's representative in Wales. She's holding court as the heir to the throne would. And even though it's not proclaimed, she's never invested formally as Princess of Wales. It's really heavily implied. Like, I don't know why else you would send your kid to hold court in Wales if they're not kind of in some way occupying this position. And I think that's such a huge shift in her education is so now it's not just learning Latin and practicing her vocabulary words and learning how to entertain and speak with foreign dignitaries. It's go learn how to rule. It's go take this rite of passage that all of the other heirs to the throne have in some capacity. I suppose the only thing that we have comparable is a bit like, you know, when you, you know, you don't have a promotion at work, but you're doing the job and everybody knows you're doing the job, but we're just not going to talk about it. It must have been quite a daunting feeling to have for Mary. But then I also suppose on the flip side, you've then got Catherine, who must have been quietly having a little moment of pride that all of the education that she's pulled together for her is now going to be of some practical use. To me, what's most interesting about this chapter in Mary's life is that, like you said, she's operating as the Princess of Wales. And nobody is actually officially declaring her as such. But it's starting to be talked about and people are starting to form camps. Um, Henry is clearly not in the camp that supports Mary as Princess of Wales. If he was, he would have formally invested her as such. He seems to just kind of be going through the motions, like you said, of I need to send somebody to Wales. Let me at least send my daughter. Let me send anybody. Whereas the Catherine camp, the, the camp that is much more, I think, reflective of Catherine's own feelings on the subject, 
are already heralding Mary as the future of England to the point where her old tutor, uh, Vives, actually dedicates a work to Princess Mary, the Princess of Wales. It's in print for the first time. And he, he takes the chance to praise Catherine of Aragon, too, as like the most virtuous lady he knows, his protectress, um, you know, really establishing himself as a member of their camp. So, yeah, just interesting to see how Mary's education suddenly does become such a huge political issue because suddenly everyone's like, we didn't have a problem with her being educated well before, but now she's starting to be educated almost as a man. And that's a little bit scary. I'm of the opinion, based on all the contextual evidence, that Catherine was very in favor of this because not only was Catherine very proud of her daughter and wanted to make sure that her daughter was being respected and being celebrated, she was also protecting her own position at court. And you need to show that you you have a capable heir in your own child so that you won't be replaced. Hats off to Vivez for having the actual audacity and the the bulls basically to, to do that because that could have gone horribly, horribly wrong for him. And I mean, it kind of did because he fell out of favor with everybody in the late 15. There we go. <laughs> in the late 1520s, he um, he left Oxford and he he went back to the continent where he very vocally supported Catherine's side. Um, a lot of his publications weren't translated into English or published in England until Mary's reign. So it just shows like he he got on the blacklist pretty quickly after all this began. Another thing, though, that I think is an interesting point in favor of um, thinking about Catherine as a champion of her her daughter's education as the heir to the throne. She had a really tangible example of effective female leadership. Her, Her mother was in charge of her own country. And yeah, she in some ways shared the responsibility with her husband, King Fernando, but Isabel was the sole heiress of her own half of Spain, of Castile, and ruled it as its regnant queen. So Catherine knew that it was possible that with the right woman, it was entirely a thing that people could see happening. And I think Mary being a descendant of Isabel, too, was helpful. It wasn't just a woman who you're like you know, comparing to Isabel, this is Isabel's flesh and blood, this is Isabel potentially come again, it makes sense. So like we've been saying, I don't think that Isabel necessarily raised her daughters to think of this as a common occurrence of like, you know, I can do it, anyone can. It's a, I think it's a defense mechanism for Catherine that if all else fails, at least we have this well-educated woman, a descendant of Isabel of Castile, who can save me and save the country. It just goes to show that w- with this, it's that I think w- what Isabel did a really good job with Catherine and her other children as well when educating them, it do not forget the power of where you come from because we have the power to burn it all down. And I mean, that is exactly what Catherine tried to do. You know, she advocated for a long time and loudly for Mary um, and she saw the potential in her to do great things. If anything, the education she gave Mary is almost like a little love letter that she gave gave to her daughter without, you know, giving her one. Yeah. And with with the benefit of, um, you know, studying this as history, we know that her faith was not necessarily misplaced because 
I don't know if she could have predicted it necessarily with then everything that happened later, but Mary did become the first official queen regnant of England. She was crowned queen of England in her own right. And even though now we kind of, I think, downplay her reign because it was shorter than her sister Elizabeth's, a lot of what Elizabeth did was directly set up by Mary. Mary kind of paved the way and she got everyone somewhat used to the idea of having a queen on the throne. So Catherine's education paid off and that championing of her daughter really paid off, I think. So definitely keep in mind, Catherine of Aragon wasn't just Mary's kind of spiritual teacher. Uh, She wasn't only interested in Mary's religious education or, uh, you know, teaching her Spanish or something. She was interested in creating the ideal Renaissance princess. And then I think later through her decision and her kind of championing of Mary to become a de facto princess of Wales, she was really interested in creating the next heir to the English throne. It happened to be her daughter. That's fine. We'll still support her unconditionally. I think that's a a huge legacy of Catherine that can't be ignored. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Kate and I will discuss the education of Elizabeth I and Edward. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and a review. Long live the Queens!